Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. This is Dr. Canis Pierce with Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare, and you are listening to our Elite Learning podcast, where we share the most up-to-date education for healthcare professionals. Thank you for joining us for this podcast series topic, Nursing Roles and Healthcare Policy. Today, we're going to dive deep into the critical role nurses play in shaping healthcare policy, especially when it comes to our underserved populations. For this topic, I'm joined by Abby Schmidt, a nurse educator with a background in emergency medicine and humanitarian support. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today, Abby. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So how did you get into the nursing policy arena? What really struck up your interest in this area? Um, To be honest, um, so I've been a nurse for roughly 16 years, um, and I was interested in it from the beginning um, in nursing school and my um, associate's degree program, the bachelor and the master's program. But later on, um, you know, just my roles in inpatient care, um, emergency medicine, and even in remote roles and in the um, nursing um, academic world, I just noticed specific opportunities for nurses that they could put insight and offer solutions for policymakers. Absolutely. Uh, when One of the things we're going to be talking about today with policy is vulnerable populations or underserved communities. Can you kind of help us understand who they are, what those are? Yes. So I want to say something first. Um, the purpose, I don't want this podcast to, um, to send any messages of you're not doing enough or you need to do more or any guilt messages. Absolutely. I want to just, yeah, because sometimes this is a heavy subject and nurses already, practicing nurses already are such amazing advocates for these populations already. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just each individual nurse. And if you have the capacity, if you have the time, if you have the influence um, to make a difference, go ahead. But um, just informative. Um, it's, it's very, um, it's just another avenue of a way that we can leave a long, you know, long lasting legacy um, is, you know, looking for different avenues. So I think this is really great. And I love what you said about, you know, you're not trying to put more on a plate of a nurse who's already so overwhelmed at the bedside. They, they really are working and advocating for for communities. So this is just another avenue. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Um, And back to your question. So it is important to look at these terms. Um, And sometimes vulnerable and underserved are used interchangeably. Yes. However, they're very distinct groups and they can overlap. And that's when the high risk comes in, when, when someone is, um, is part of both groups. So vulnerable is actually the, the population that for certain reasons or for certain qualities, they are at higher risk for poor outcomes. So this would be those with serious medical conditions, either chronic or acute, older adults, disabled individuals, children, pregnant women, those mm-hmm. that face environmental ra- risk factors such as homelessness or mm-hmm. um, poverty-stricken or disaster-stricken areas, um, those at racial and ethnic um, risk that face different risk factors for their ethnicity, um, refugees, victims of abuse or neglect, and also mm-hmm. veterans. Right. Um, so that's the vulnerable. 
So technically nurses are already advocating for this group. Underserved mm -hmm. is different. These, these are defined as those who, they have a lack of adequate and appropriate healthcare access. Um, so I'll come back to that later, but there, there are barriers to receiving equitable health care, such as physical barriers, financial barriers, or other right. forms. Some examples of these groups, um, it, the low-income or homeless, uninsured or underinsured. So mm -hmm. about 10% of those living in the United States continue to have no insurance at all. Right. Um, so this would be an underserved group. Um, other groups would be those in rural communities. Mm -hmm. So isolated remote areas. Um, I have a statistic. So according to the National Center for Health Statistics, in 2019, rural areas had a 20% higher death rate than those in urban areas. Oh, I didn't know that. It was, right. that's, that's high. That's significant, right? Mm -hmm. So people took notice, especially in the nursing and the medical field. They said, why and what are these deaths attributed to? So they mm -hmm. found that four of the five leading causes were chronic conditions, so heart disease, cancers, um, respiratory disorders such as COPD, emphysema, um, mm -hmm. along those lines. And when you really break it down, those conditions are manageable. And we have yeah. such amazing um, interventions developed. So when you connect the dots, access to healthcare really does prolong life. Um, and 20% didn't receive that. Um, so that's, I feel like that's an important um, statistic to note. Right. And, and those are some really good examples of some of those more prevalent health disparities that we're really seeing um, in the vulnerable population and in the underserved communities. I mean, those are some of the, the top um, chronic illnesses right there. So exactly. access to care really, you know, a lot of times I think one of the barriers that we see too is, um, or we kind of attribute it to not... Um, Oh, there's a word I'm looking for and I can't think of it, but where they, they don't take charge of their, their health themselves to be able to do it, you know? And so then as nurses, we get frustrated because we're like, but we've educated you and we've done this, but really it has to do with some of the, the barriers that you're just talking about of, of not being able to get to the pharmacy, not being able to get to the provider uh, to get what they need. So that, that's some really good, um, prevalent health disparities there that we really need to take into account. But what are some of the um, common misconceptions that we see surrounding the healthcare challenges um, of this population, some other ones? Right, absolutely. So um, one is uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around homelessness. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people think, oh, they're homeless because they're addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. um, this may be the case, but research actually supports that the addiction and um, drug and alco alcohol abuse had come after the situation of um, that they found themselves in as a way to cope. Right. Um, so some more truthful, more research-based reasons that, that have been found is family violence, um, mental health issues, physical um, injuries, traumatic mm -hmm. experiences, and limited household um, income, loss of jobs, things like that. Um, another misconception is that it's just individuals out on the street, um, adults, but d uh, another statistic is that 28% of the homeless in our country are families. 
with children. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 7% are unaccompanied youth. So that reflects back to family, the family life, the family environment, mm -hmm. um, violence, mm -hmm. um, and food and insecurity. And they're trying to survive. I mean, especially as an exactly. adolescent, you're, you're trying to survive. You have to have food to survive. You know, where do they get that exactly. from? And are there other um, myths that you want to touch on? Yes, and I don't, I don't want to go down the political realm, but refugees in our country and um, non-English speaking, mm -hmm. uh, this maybe isn't per se a myth, but this just something taken for granted. Um, so being able to communicate, mm -hmm. I believe, is, is a luxury. So we, like you and I, are, are communicating. We speak the same language. We're getting our point across. Our needs are met. Right. But it, it truly is a barrier when you, you do not speak the, the language of those around you. And I can attribute to that. Um, we were stationed, my husband was in the military, and we were stationed in Japan for several years. So were um, we. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. We were in yes. Okinawa. We were too. <gasps> what years? Um, okay. My daughter was born in 2010, uh, so 2011 to 2014. Okay. Okay, so so we got there um, December of 2013 okay. and left 2017. So we, so we overlapped, yeah, right. just a little bit, yeah. I worked at the naval base at Camp Foster. I did too. The new, okay. Camp, yeah, yeah, it was, I started on Camp... Uh, um, the old one. Yeah, the old one. Was it Camp Lester? Uh, uh, I, I think so. I never then, went on and that. And then moved to Camp Foster, yeah. So, okay. all right, we're off track, but that's so cool because you were there yeah. too. So what, what were you going to so say? You can, so you can identify even, um, you know, even simple things are just mm -hmm. such a headache. Yes. Um, so this, we lived off base in a village called Yomitan. Um, mm -hmm. So we even go into the grocery store. I'm a southern girl, so I needed butter. I went to my local, um, you know, a close by Japanese market and could not figure out what it was. Um, so I came home with several things, none of which were butter. So long story short, these, this, this barrier of language yeah. is a huge, it, it is tough. So if you are kind of born, culture, you know, not even just yes, language, culture. culture. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And yes. And, in uh, in Japan, another example, when we tipped, we, we had no idea that it was, you don't tip um, there extremely. Yeah. It was kind yeah. of a, um, you know, rude yeah. action. Yes. So yeah. Um, and another statistic, sorry to bring this up again, but no, I, uh, love I love, <laughs> I love numbers. I'm a numbers girl, but so the U S census bureau says that, um, 8.2% of the individuals in the United States reported that they spoke less than very well. So mm. to me, that is, um, barely scraping by with right. You know, hello, goodbye, things like that. But the meaningful and is they not depend. getting paid. It seems like, too, a lot of them, when they are not speaking well, they depend on their children who typically are exactly. in public school. But there's, it's, I don't know if you call it like a, an age difference in our understanding of what it is that we're trying to say. Because, um, you know, you have children that are very literal uh, when they hear what you say. And then they're trying to tell their parent or whoever it is in their family what we're trying to to tell them, but, but the language is different. So understanding and between who it is that's, um, that's doing the, um, the talking between the different languages, the interpreter. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And some may think that Spanish is just 
the most prominent, which it may be, but there are very many, uh, there are a lot of other languages um, in our country. So, and um, the language apps, they don't, they don't work that well. I mean, I had to use one from English to, to Japanese, like you're saying, and I had a lot of trouble finding, I'm like, it shouldn't be this hard. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, those are some really good points too, and they're and not political at all. It's just honest between languages and cultures and how different we are. Um, did you have any other myths that you wanted to go over? Um, I had one more. Um, so one myth. Well, it's it's based in truth, um, but the understanding the understanding of this um, policy is kind of uh, blurred. So EMTALA, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. A lot of Mm -hmm. people think, well, in the United States, if you need care, it's the federal government requires that you are seen, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. all of these emergency rooms, they are required to stabilize and treat every patient, regardless of insurance, regardless of any other factors, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a very, that's an amazing, that's a wonderful policy. However, it's limited. So the ER is not designed for long-term care. Right. It's designed to stabilize, and it, and it should be that. Um, so the emergency room providers and nurses, they um, refer to the primary care, um, mm-hmm. or they refer to a specialist. So what right. happens when they are not able to make it to that specialist? Then they're going to revolve, go back to the emergency room. It's just a continued um, mm-hmm. cycle, and it's going to end with, uh, with terrible outcomes for the patient. Absolutely. Very, very true. So when we're looking at the different areas within policy making, what are some of those vital areas where nurses can really significantly shape healthcare policy? And, and how, do the, how does this influence uh, or translate into enhancing healthcare access and outcomes for these communities? Before we look at the specific areas, um, I wanted to, to create a background, some help, helpful information on policy itself, yeah, on healthcare that's policy. Yeah. It's such a huge umbrella. Like it is a large um, umbrella. It, it's basically any law, guideline, regulation, mm-hmm. um, protocol, procedure. It's just basically how healthcare is, um, is given, how, it's, mm-hmm. um, how it runs. Um, so it's important because nurses are kind of it's a foreign language um, to yes. us. It, I, I'm intimidated at times when thinking about legislative branches and things like that. It's the just legal not... jargon. Just yes, like we have healthcare jargon and they have the legal jargon, and, it, and exactly it's, we we don't understand each other. I think it's a lot of fluff words when I'm reading it. I'm like, I don't know what this means. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. You feel like uh-huh. you need a dictionary while you're reading yes. about it, right? Yeah. But but yeah, so. Um, there, just to break it down, there are de- different levels. Um, we'll use the funnel method. There's the national and federal policy, mm-hmm. the laws, basically. Um, um, and then it goes to the state, um, then down to your local government. Um, and then mm-hmm. there are specific entities that are um, health care organization, like a hospital, mm-hmm. um, clinics, things like that. Um, there are independent groups. And then there are academic institutions that have their own policies. So healthcare policy in itself is a huge window. Right. So each nurse um, needs to really look inside um, and see what your being, what your experience and your education and your mm-hmm. influence would point you to. Um, so there are the different areas: prevention and education. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So nurses are involved in programs and initiatives designed for underserved populations, right? This can Mm -hmm. come in the form of preventative care, um, immunizations, um, chronic disease management. And nurses Mm -hmm. have a huge impact on looking at these social determinants of health. Um, So I'll say that again. It's termed, it's used a lot in the political um, and healthcare realm, um, or realm. It's called Social Determinants of Health. It's S-D-O-H. So that is basically what factors in someone's life are impacting their health and their well-being. Mm-hmm. There's um, a lot. When I look at the Social Determinants of Health, there's a lot under it. It's almost like an umbrella, but it, exactly. there's a lot of terms and a lot of determinants underneath that. Yes, I agree. Um, and just to point out a few, um, so safe housing, mm-hmm. safe transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, some people are walking um, in terrible conditions, long distances, um, unsafe bus routes. Um, just mm-hmm. it, there's so many out there. Um, education, jobs, income, adequate nutrition, um, mm-hmm. language and literacy, like we mentioned. And then there's also the realms of racism, discrimination, and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some um, barriers as well. And I meant to touch on this earlier, and I think I forgot. If you don't mind, I'm going to okay. go back. Yeah, no, absolutely. To another, so another group in that underserved um, are those who have either feared or experienced discrimination from healthcare workers. Um, and this is a reality, um, and it is a, a barrier. Um, So those would be certain racial and ethnic minorities, Mm -hmm. certain religious groups, and then um, those within the LGBTQ plus communities. Well, and Um, talking about bias, too, is it's also male male and gender, male and female. Um, I had a a video that one of our subject matter experts did, and he was telling the story about how you know, sometimes you're you're waiting on someone to come talk to you about the status of someone in the hospital, and the elevator opens, and and a female walks out, but you were expecting a male uh, physician, mm-hmm. you know, so or a female, a male nurse comes out, and you're expecting a female. So, it's there's a lot underneath that bias in general, especially your implicit biases, which is why a lot of states have now started in enacting policies where healthcare providers have to be educated in biases. Right. That's that's a wonderful uh, mm-hmm. expansion of yeah of of um, learning and cultural com- um, competency and really um, falls under that as well as understanding because some of it we think it's a bias but really it's a cultural norm for them just like we have cultural norms you know all cultures have their norms um, but yes implicit bias is is really becoming um, a hot topic for boards to to put required education for healthcare providers on it. So that's very interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, it it is a huge, another um, issue with cultural um, competence, just different um, verbalizations or different comfort zones with things like Mm -hmm. pain. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was, uh, you know, in the emergency room, I noticed that certain cultures um, did not want to admit that they were in pain. Right. Um, yes. They felt like it was a um, weakness. Mm-hmm. So you have to identify that and recognize that and see if there is some way you can get away around that for the overall well-being of your patient. Right. Yes. 
So as you're as you're kind of going through the different areas, um, how how can we enhance the healthcare access for these communities as as nurses in our role? Okay, so a major if you are um, an inpatient, outpatient, um, home health, maybe you're a remote nurse, um, you've got to tap into your resources as far as social workers mm-hmm. and um, caseworkers. They are a librarian of information on that the community outreach programs, um, right. and then the you know that they're tapping into research, they're tapping into um, financial incentives, into mm-hmm. funding allocation, things like that, um, reduced prescriptions, um, free clinics, free vaccinations, things like that. Um, so, if if you think about it, you're you are a team with a mm-hmm. lot of people, even though even if you don't know that team. Um, even if you don't know them, you're serving the same purpose. Um, right. So definitely nurses need to tap into their resources and listen to your patients. Um, we have a very trusted role. There have been a lot of polls and research and uh, studies that ask people about who they trust the most in different um, career paths. And nurses are always at the top. Right. Um, so we, we need to use that platform and we need to listen to our patients and um, be an advocate, um, be a resource, listen to their situation, look at the, the whole, um, mm-hmm. the holistic view. It can, we can really zone in on something, but we need to look at the whole person um, and look at all of their, all of the factors that, um, that impact their health. Absolutely. And, and you have a very front seat role when you're in home health and uh, working out in the community and in that public health domain. So that's really important. Also knowing how to tap into social work. How do you tap into those? Do you, you know, if you're out working in the community, where do we find those social workers, case workers? So the first place you should go is your health department. Um, they're wonderful. They, they are the front lines because technically that, uh, other than the emergency room, uh, many mm-hmm. people go to the health department. Um, and then the Department of Health and Human Services within a um, local, uh, an area. So I'm not sure if um, p- there are different um, avenues if you want to go high and have a huge impact right. over a, a large geographical area, or you can go just directly in your small community. Um, the, you know, the, like I said, the health department, places like that, the hospital, the community, home health mm-hmm. agencies, um, the food banks, homeless shelters, things like that. They, they have a lot of information and sometimes they don't have a voice or a platform to get that information um, to other people. Right, absolutely. I see a lot of posts um, on different social media where people are like, where can I get food? Or, um, you know, where can I get help with someone helping me pay my rent or clothes? Or So I, there's a lot of people that don't know the avenues that they can take within a community or their community to get help. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important that as, as a nurse working in the community, if you're able to really kind of know where to send people that that's definitely helpful for that community right. so when you as nurses say we want to collaborate with say policymakers, i mean because this can happen at community level state level federal level but how do we collaborate with policymakers? how do we make sure that there's an accurate representation of those unique healthcare needs that you know a community needs Okay, so um, again, each nurse um, needs to figure out the specific um, 
who has the authority? Is it at the national level or is it at the local level or state level? To be honest, um, if you are going big, um, if it's a large overarching law, um, you need to join forces. Um, there are so there's strength and influence in um, in numbers. Um, so the the American Nurses Association is an example. Um, they have significant influence and communication yeah. lines with Congress. They're consistently you know back and forth. Um, they um, they are consistently in communication with regulatory agencies like the CDC. Centers for Medicaid and Medicare um, and different uh, different branches of the government. Um, so if you want, if there's a national, if you're really driven by a desire to change an, at a national reform level, um, I would join one of these organizations. The National League of um, Nursing is another. Join, um, become a part of a committee, um, get information from them and follow their um, example or their um advice on mm -hmm. the communication aspect. Right. If you if you are very bold, um, and you don't even have to be bold, you just have to be passionate about a topic, you can communicate directly with the legislators and policymakers. Um, first, figure out who your legislator is. And this is simple, I'm not sure about you, but I when I first started this, I was like, who? Who is my right. representative? You know, you usually just see the signs, but then after the voting is finished, you're kind of like, ah, oh, who is that person? But mm -hmm. so Google, um, who is my legislator? Put in your address or your zip code, and it will give you that information. Um, and they're not a hidden celebrity in the dark shadows. They are representatives of their constituents, so they are out in the public eye, and there are methods of communication. Um, so when you go to this site, after you put in your address, it'll start big. It'll start at the president, and then it'll work its way down from state senators down to your local community boards and committees. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, so based on which website it is, and again, if you Google this, there are a lot. Right. Um, so go to that um, person and make sure it aligns with, you know, your uh, goal. If they're in a different um, industry or, you know, not really in the healthcare realm, see if there's someone with their same um, uh, level of legislative power. Um, so once you find it out and you do, you have your own research, um, contact them. Um, you can email. Um, I would not use your, I, I highly recommend not to use your work email um, uh, because you're, uh, from your work email, you're representing your uh, organization that you're employed right. for. Yeah. So you can't really uh, do that, but I would use your personal email. Um, you can call them. You can write letters or snail mail as us in the older <laughs> generations are mm -hmm. used to, um, or schedule a meeting. Um, so those meetings, um, make sure, like I said, have your ducks in a row. Don't go in um, just with your opinions and your thoughts. Uh, go in with facts and research and substantial evidence that supports your idea and your um, your purpose. Mm -hmm. um, be clear and concise. Be passionate, but not aggressive and angry and um, argumentative. Right. Because sometimes, you know, we can get angry about a subject. It's very emotional and heavy. Very subject. passionate. You get very passionate yes. about it. Yes. Yes. But if things are said like, why aren't you doing anything? You need to be doing more. That closes that communication. Absolutely. It, it closes it. And um, remember, these legislators are humans and they have a lot on their plate already. 
Um, so just go in open, um, you know, very confident in your stance. Um, mm -hmm. And you can also do this within the organize, organization that you're employed for. Um, I would recommend going to your direct manager and asking them, and uh, they will go to their direct manager. Sometimes that's a good idea. There are sometimes committees mm -hmm. um, that are designed for um, for policymaking um, advocacy within the nursing staff. Um, and then academics. Um, if you are a nurse and you, you maybe it's within your own um, nursing curriculum that you went through or you've noticed it in um, students that are clinical in their clinical rotation at your um, your workplace, any anything that you notice that should be changed or altered or could be made better. Um, the American Association of Colleges of Nurses, which is the AACN, they come up or they develop the, the competencies and nursing ethic guidelines, um, it, the structure of our of our education programs. So that would be a good route to go as well. Right. Those are some really good um, ideas as far as how we can get involved with policymaking with le within legislation. Um, I did want to kind of point out, I just recently learned this about a year or so ago, but um, there are some states where you can actually subscribe to legal notifications. So when things are coming about, when things are, are being talked about or you know policies are in the making, you can actually be alerted uh, and maybe it's something that comes up that you have a personal interest in or you're invested in and, and you know you can maybe hop in um, that way as well to get involved in uh, policy making. Absolutely and then the ANA has um, they've developed a group um, and it's called RN Action mm -hmm. um, so you can subscribe to that and they'll let you know of um, different policy um, initiatives. Absolutely. Well, Abby, we've come to the end of our first episode for this topic, um, and we will be joined by Abby again as we continue this discussion in episode two, and I really hope we can continue it talking about these nursing initiatives in, um, in episode two. Thank you for joining us for episode one, Abby. Thank you, Candace. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.